Hello, this is Mike Levin here in beautiful Winter Park, Florida. It's October 15th and we're sitting here 2004 by Lake Eola in Digital Downtown. I'm sitting here with Serge Beauregard, successful and now on the bench, uh, I guess semi-permanently, uh, software developer, etc, etc. Not exactly sure how to describe Serge, but Serge has a varied background which spans Oh, I guess the past 20, 30 years in software development from uh, the dinosaur age uh, on up to present day. And he's had some very successful ventures and... Uh... Hi, Serge. Hi there. How you doing, Mike? Oh, I'm doing just great. I'm doing just great. I guess the best way to start off is just to ask you a general question. Uh, what event in your background in software development really stands out the most to you? Um, well, it I don't think it works that way. First of all, let me just give you an idea of what my background is so whoever's listening to this uh, can interpret what, I, what I'm saying. I started out in, in the mid-60s at Bell Laboratories up in uh, New Jersey, and at that time uh, that's when Unix was being developed and the C language was being specified and the compilers built at Bell Labs, uh, which is where they originated. <clears throat> and I was work I worked there about 12 years, 13 years, and spent most of my time working on computer-based instruction. And a long time ago there was an authoring platform called Plato. Uh, it still uh, exists in, in many different forms. And we were trying to come up with uh, both the development of user interfaces and also trying to master how you could use a computer to uh, contain and present courseware to students of all different types, uh, from graduate students all the way down to K through 12 types of students. After that, I uh, left, joined a company in uh, Chicago, and we became the biggest education company in the software business, a company called Deltac. And the software development uh, I headed up there was development of computer-based training platforms again. And that was another uh, about 12-year ride. We sold that company, left, I came to Florida where we are now. And we bought a, uh, a banking software company. And there I headed up, built and headed up a uh, development organization that had about 200 programmers in it. Uh, that was about another 10-year ride, ended that, and then started up a little startup company called ActiveWords, which was really building a, a really slick natural language user interface utility <coughs> for uh, PC platforms. And that was about a five-year uh, ride. Um, and that was my idea, and built a development team around it, and that was kind of my kind of hors d'oeuvre treat at the end of my career. Um, I'm pretty much fully retired now, 63 years old. Now in terms of what <coughs> uh, might be interesting to share with someone else about my career is, uh, first of all, keeping in mind that, that I've mainly been a supervisor, a manager, executive, uh, always in charge of uh, recruiting, building, organizing software development organizations. And it occurs to me how different, uh, what a different skill set you need depending on the kind of organization you have. 
let me start first with the last one we did, which was active words. And the idea there was to get some really very, very sharp, very independent-minded um, individuals, bring them together in the team, sell them on an idea, get them involved in developing the idea and refining the idea, get their hearts and souls uh, committed to it, and then let them loose to uh, design and implement a really kick-ass piece of software and to make it as good as you can possibly make it with no compromises. And that, <clears throat> that's something all my career I always wanted to do because I ended up, if you're software development uh, head, particularly uh, in an organization that is working on a massive piece of software, uh, and the one that comes to mind is the 10 years here in, in Orlando, banking software, a uh, product that probably had 3-4 million lines of software, had a couple hundred people building it, and there the skill set is not one of, of energizing people around an idea. Let's wait a minute till the siren. Okay, we're back now. Uh, the siren's gone away. The thing that that uh, comes to mind, the skill set you need when you're running a large software development organization for a released product that has hundreds, thousands, millions of customers, is that you spend most of your time mediating. It's not a technical job at all. And what you're mediating is, first of all, you're dealing with this massive thing that you've built. And the people usually who, who create the product didn't have a full understanding that this product would have to be modified daily throughout its entire lifetime. So you're spending a lot of time going back and cleaning up the modification infrastructure so that you get a product that was really kind of designed as a one-time build so that it can now be modified daily by hundreds of people. And <clears throat> that's, that's just a massive job because it's got so much momentum. Um, and trying to reorganize three, three million lines of code is, is just a horse. It's so really this is tough. the distinction that you make between uh, bringing a, a product to market and then maintaining it and growing it past version Yeah, working with a, with a clean slate product. And if you're working with what I would call an existing product, not a clean slate product, you've got to hire totally different kinds of people. Uh, you have to hire people that want to work in harness. Okay, you have to hire people that are willing to uh, play down their creativity because the last thing you can afford is some guy sitting in the boat trying to row in a different direction. You just can't do that. So you're really running a small army. On top of that, you have to respond to all the customers that have already bought into the product. They want to guide its future. Then you've got an organization of sales people out there that are selling it to new people who want to guide its future. And they'll buy it contingent on your agreeing to make certain kinds of changes. Then you're dealing with uh, the people who are selling you the infrastructure, the computers, whether they be mainframes or PCs, and the evolution of their operating systems, and you're trying to guarantee portability and so on. So you're spending almost all of your time. It's like a UN deal trying to agree on whether or not you're going to invade Iraq. You know, whose priority is going to come in first? And on top of that, you've got to make decisions that will keep the company viable. Because if all you're doing is favoring future customers, you're going to start out your previous customers. And if all you do is focus on your customers, you're going to fall behind the portability criteria. And if you get obsessed on portability and customers, then uh, you're going to have problems in terms of cleaning up your infrastructure so you can be efficient in, in managing the daily revision of a product. And on top of that, in the banking industry, you had another constituency 
which was annual changes in banking regulations. And banking regulations are like the law of physics, they're a brick wall. And if your banking system, by a certain date in the year, doesn't support uh, different taxation regulations, for example, that means all of the banks that are running your software can't make statements to their customers, their customers can then bring their CPAs and so on. So you end up all of your time really being the kind of Kofi Annan of this, this tremendous set of incoming pressures, almost none of which have anything to do with technology. So even though you get into the business, you're a technical person, you have tremendous success up the management leg, you find out that you're spending 98% of your time doing a political job and not a technical job. And it was particularly striking to me when we sold that company, that ended, and I had an opportunity to work on an idea where I had built a prototype myself on an Apple Macintosh. I had it running. It was a real clue because I put it together with a bunch of utilities. I didn't really have the time to, to build a real product that you could release and so on. And then bring in a team, take that experience, put out a managing this little 10-man group because they manage themselves because what I did was concentrate on clarifying an idea, selling the idea, getting everybody to buy in, and then being open to the kind of changes their insights brought to the idea. And just for a little context, what did this product do? Uh, the ActiveWords product? Uh, the ActiveWords product, basically, well, you've got it running on your computer. We're going to turn it off because we have another alarm. Okay, the, the basic idea of uh, ActiveWords, you can go see it at ActiveWords.com, incidentally, was to enable someone to name any object in their computer or any process uh, that you can trigger uh, with a mouse, um, combination of mouse and keyboard in the Windows uh, operating environment, or any function combination of mouse and keyboard in any Windows compliant app and give it any arbitrary uh, English, French, German name that you want to give it. And um, so if the function is launching a document, you can call a document my resume and scroll over way somewhere and just call it resume. And anytime you type resume in any context, uh, a little flag will come up and say, say basically active words is saying, are you talking to me or are you just typing input? And you have many ways of responding. <coughs> it's just a setting. So maybe two space bars uh, will tell it I'm talking to you and then it'll go launch the document resume. So you don't have to remember where it is. You don't have to, to remember those details. You just name it, forget it, and then you can just use the name and off you go. So you started out with a little script, basically a script-based application that you put together yourself, and then you decided to turn it into a shrink wrap product. That's right. That's right. So and that the challenge of that, obviously, was, was to be able to create a product that was portable, uh, upwardly compatible with uh, subsequent releases of Windows, that would get in and actually capture uh, keystrokes before the operating system got them, and then be able to do that from within the context of any application, regardless of whether it was well-behaved or badly behaved. And um, that was a really tough technical challenge. That was very, very hard to do. Windows was not designed and, and has made it very difficult for people uh, to cut into its operations at that level.
and then be able to be totally transparent, be able to capture every single keystroke, be able to look that up very, very quickly in the database in between the keystrokes, and then uh, be able to pass those keystrokes back into the application. Really tough. And then if I decide, let's say, the word resume, that yes, I'm signaling active words, when I signal it, it has to erase the word from the application I happen to be in and position me at the point before I actually made that utterance. And then we created a version that also uh, accepted spoken language and so on. So I'll give you an example. This morning, um, on the web, <clears throat> I just figured out that the TV guide had listings for television in my neighborhood. So I went to that web page. Uh, I assigned it TV guide to active words. So now, no matter when I am, I just step up to my computer, I type TV guide, and it brings that web page up. So I don't have to forget to remember if I've got it um, as a favorite. I don't have to remember where it is. I don't need to know its URL. I just type TV guide, and it'll come to me. So really, what we have is inception. You have the idea, conception, I guess, inception, right. and then you, you build the, uh, the prototype, the script-based application. Then you decide to shrink-wrap it or productize it. Right. And then you've got that whole bailiwick of decisions you've got to make and carry forth to, uh, to, to to bring that to fruition. Sure. You have to fund it. Sure. You have to spec it out. You've got to put a team together to build right. it. You've got to build it, test it, and then bring it to market. Right. So what were some of the challenges that you ran into in that process? Well, you run a challenge right away. You get into it and you figure out, here's an application, and you know that it's going to be database-centric because every keystroke is going to have to be looked up in the database, compare it, whether it's making a word yet or not, and so on. <clears throat> and it has to be extremely fast because it's got to be transparent. And it turned out that, that the most sensitive application was Microsoft Word, because Microsoft Word itself does that for its spelling checker and so on. So we had to take precedence over Microsoft Word. So the first question is, where do you get a database fast enough to do it? And we had three guys on the team who were database people, uh, two, two guys and a woman, and the first thing was, do we use the jet engine or do we go with some other product? Because we weren't going to build a database, you're going to go find an OEM component to it. So now you've got to turn it over to the team and you've got to let them go nuts, and you've got to really figure out where the performance is going to be, and you've got to get them to buy in to understand the cost factor, this is going to be free. It turns out the jet engine is free, and that is the one we selected, and we selected it on performance. And the one that was competing with it, and I forget the name of it, that was years ago, about five years ago, uh, was a product we would have had to purchase, one-time purchase on an OEM basis. It wasn't all that expensive. Um, and that, that was a debate that went on for about three and a half months, a tremendous amount of testing. And we finally got to the point where we proved to ourselves that the jet engine was the fastest seek time and, and so on. So that, that was an example. Other examples have to do with, there were a lot of user interface issues with ActiveWords. And a lot of it had to do with how, how does this, a person manage his word, word base. Turns out my version of ActiveWords has about 3,500 words. <coughs> that, well, the first one had about 35,000 words, uh, but 3,500 words. And we decided that it would also have a spell checker as an integrated component and so on. And then what kind of tool do you make available to the user to manage this word base? Because once you've created 3,500 words or 35,000 words, how do you figure out if you've forgotten what you've assigned a word for, how do you go find it? And if you don't remember that you assigned it, uh, what word you assigned, but you remember the document you want to find, so you've got to be able to link both ways and so on. So that, that was uh, um, an area of difficulty. Another area of difficulty is how this whole idea of, of the UI 
where you could have somebody working at a, at a keyboard and we use kind of the, the metaphor of a blind person who was very, very fast on the keyboard and now that person is trying to operate all of Windows and all of the controls of their application totally by naming all the functions. Right? And <clears throat> what are all the signaling protocols that we can use that will be very, very simple, very, very clear to the user, but that can be done from a keyboard where you're talking to two different things at the same time. You're laying down text, let's say, in a Microsoft Word document, but at any point you can make an utterance that says Open TV Guide, and how does the combination of the application, the operating system, and active words know who you're talking to? And that was a, a lot of experimentation was involved, a lot of discussion in the team, and then uh, a lot of once you make a decision, then you have to go figure out the feasibility questions, how you're going to do that in Windows, and so on. And then on top of it, we wanted to make sure that we were very, very well behaved in Windows, because we were writing on Windows 95, and we wanted to, at the same time, work in NP. We wanted to be compatible with XP and future releases, and so on. And it's worked out that way. So that means we had to go into very dirty applications, but come up with a very clean solution that would port without modification and so on. So, that's so in the meantime, you had some outside funding here, and uh, I'm not sure, uh, did you have to consider uh, time to completion? Did you have to consider uh, size estimates and, and time estimates, that sort of thing? And not really. We, we brought in about $3 million in capital. We did it in, in three different uh, financing rounds. And <clears throat> instead of going to the venture capital community, we did kind of the local uh, angel investor community. And we had a lead investor who was technically a very, very savvy uh, person. And um, he worked with me to make sure we had the time to do it right. So this was a, a piece of software where we had an opportunity to achieve per perfection in our own mind. Now we had a couple of fights because the uh, I wanted to make sure that the the application was built in it, it completely in round, 360 degrees, that all of it was fleshed out, and we didn't leave pieces of it to be built in the future. So basically, how long did it take to build the software? It took about two, two years, about 20 man years of work uh, went into it. How many people were on the team? Uh, Ten developers. And was it tough to pick the team? Yeah, well, we did something that was very unusual. The, uh, the guy who was the, that I picked as the head of product development was a uh, guy, PhD in decision sciences, uh, got at University of Arizona, but he had he was a, uh, a Mexican national and came out of Cuernavaca, Mexico, which is kind of the, the high-end bedroom community of Mexico City, and he had been a professor at the Monterey Institute of Technology, MIT, and it turns out they actually uh, trade professors uh, with MIT up in, in Cambridge, and it's one of the leading uh, South American uh, technical schools, and we built the tech technical team in Mexico City, and at the beginning I was very skeptical, and it turns out that, that uh, these kids, they were all uh, 21 to 26, with one exception, a 32-year-old guy, PhD in physics from Poland, living in, in Cuernavaca. They all spoke English uh, well. They were all uh, master's level uh, comp-sci grads. And this fellow Roberto, who headed them up, uh, had been their professor. 
and he helped us basically just deal off the top of the deck from the graduating um, uh, computer science master's level program over a period of about three years. He picked them out of three graduating classes. Some of them had already had other jobs and we recruited them from there, brought them into ActiveWords. And uh, we had tremendous success. And I was skeptical because I thought, gee, these guys are so far away. How are they going to get uh, the smarts they need? Because the work we were doing was so intimate um, with the Windows OS. And it turned out they were able to do absolutely everything off the internet. I mean, they're just wizards. They're phenomenal. So the, the, the things like uh, compensation, So doing development budgets and, and projections and scheduling and so on um, piece of cake. was a piece of cake. But the thing that was really interesting about this team is that I would go down to Cornavaca about once every two weeks and I'd spend three days down there. And we just work on the, on the chalkboard for three days. And you know, I had a very, very clear idea of what ActiveWords was going to be. And they brought a lot to the party, but, they, but the, the clarity of the idea really didn't change much. Ah, modeling, they, but, okay. But a lot, of the, a lot of the details changed. And we would go down, and I would just work with them, and we would lay out, gosh, what it, sometimes I felt was going to be six months' worth of development. And they'd send it to me in two weeks. They'd have it done. I mean, they were just done. The modeling was And that they were smart because they, their whole approach was to build a prototype. And by the time we, we figured we had all the functionality built, it uh, was about a year and a half into the two-year build. And then they had the balls to throw it away and rebuild it, and they rebuilt it in three months. And it was just fabulous. So it sounds like short iterations. Uh, Lots know. of short iterations. We, we had a release of this thing probably every week and a half okay. for, well, for two years. And the modeling was uh, chalk and chalkboard? Chalk all and chalk and chalkboard. Okay. And did you have somebody transcribe? Well, it that? wasn't all chalk and chalkboard. I mean, in other words, sometimes I would say, you know, we'd get in a conversation, and, and I was leading the group, and it <clears throat> wasn't clear where the ideas would come from. But all of a sudden, we've had two or three options. How'd you capture it? And on the chalkboard. But then we'd leave some open issues. Okay. Are we going to go direction A, B, or C? And these guys would actually send me three different releases with direction A, B, oh and C. Gosh. They'd work out the UI, and they were just really smart. And, and I was so impressed because they didn't know this was hard to do. And they didn't think it was hard to do. They didn't accept it was hard to do. There you go. And the thing that really impressed me is by the time we got to the end, with all these iterations and so on, we'd really kludged it. And there were a lot of kludges in the product. But they had it, the idea so clear that the guy who was kind of the internal systems architect for ActiveWords basically said, okay, we've got it figured out now, let's throw this away and do it right. And go for the performance, go for the maintainability, and, and go for the upwardly compatibility. Did you find that you had some consistent kind of model that you wound up with, uh, you know, design artifact that you wound up with after these uh, three-day Blackboard sessions again and again and again? Was it a sheet of paper that had a title and then uh, uh, intro? No, no, it wasn't, but it, it was, you know, we had kind of a, a little pie chart we would go through. So we would spend 
Oh, probably half the time on functionality. And this is what active words should do, and this is what it ought to recognize. And again, we're in the lang natural language space and so on, and we want to be able to support different languages. And we spent a lot of time on that, and we spent a lot of time on, and that was really data capture database, but it was mainly talking functionality, not, not the technology. Okay. Once we had that figured out, then we probably spent, we had a half the time left, we spent probably a half of what was left on UI. This is the user interface. How are we going to make this as simple as it can possibly be? Now, ActiveWords has kind of an interesting user interface, one that you don't see that often these days. It, well, it's, it's an invisible interface. Yeah, it's an invisible, it's an invisible interface, and if you need to interact with it, it attaches itself to the window. Right. But it, it, the biggest thing we've had to fight on, the yeah, there are two main things we had to fight in terms of acceptability uh, on the application. One is, one is, how do people remember that they have a universal listener listening when there's nothing on the screen to remind them of it. Right. And we do have a command bar that can pop up and down and so on, but the whole idea was to get out of their face. Yeah. Because the whole idea was to have an application that was totally invisible, and you could ba basically talk to your computer, either through the keyboard or, or voice. We've discontinued the voice, and we did it enough to prove ourselves that we could do it, but we've stuck with, with the keyboard, and it turns out that it's most attractive to people who came up through the DOS world because they remember the command line and, and so on, and that it's always there, and, and uh, what we've done is make it always there, present in every text line of every application, and so on. So that, that, that was the tough part. And then the re remainder uh, of our design usually had to do with uh, sequencing the development. What to do first, what to do next, how to build it, uh, so that we don't paint ourselves into the corner, and so on. So half of it functionality, a quarter of it UI, and the rest of it development strategy, and preventing ourselves from, from painting ourselves into a corner. So this is a, a paradigm that I'm, I'm pretty familiar with. You've got a relational database, back-end, you've got a GUI front-end, it's Windows-based development, you've got Visual Studio. Well, we've got a GUI front-end for when you want to talk to ActiveWords to tell it how you want it to manage your invisible user interface. So here's an application whose user interface is invisible. So That's the UI for the user, but at management time, then, then we use the standard graphic user interface tools that are available. So how did you do that development? I mean, did you have someone working on the interface, quote unquote, somebody working on the data model? Did well, probably the most valuable um, thing for development is as soon as we had the basic functionality bootstrap, and I had a very, very clear idea on what that basic functionality was, everybody in the development team became dependent on the use of ActiveWords themselves. And it turns out that ActiveWords, because of the way it works, you can use it to create very, very sophisticated language-triggered macros. So, for example, let's say you're doing development where you're going to be using a lot of Windows boxes for some reason. And so you're going to, you're going to give them names. And, and this is not what they use, but call them box one, box two, box three. So you say box one, and all of a sudden out comes a string of C++ text, and then it'll position the cursor for the first variable, to accept the first variable. Right. So the developers themselves were using it to manage all of their files, opening their files, saving files, drilling down to files, so on. Then they were using it for text. And it turns out that ActiveWords is very good for people who write. 
and most of the people using active words today, believe it or not, are lawyers. Because they can, you, you can have, I think today is 64K uh, of text uh, substituted for one word. So, and it turns out that we can, we can use multiple words. We take strings of 80 characters. So you can say, you know, uh, standard argument number one, and we'll pump out 35 pages of word documents for you. Standard argument number two, so on, you know, copyright class five, uh, whatever. So it turns out that lawyers use it a lot. Writers use it uh, quite a bit. So I guess really, you know, the first uh, win that you had was a, a team, an orchestra of people that were proficient with their instruments. I mean, right. these guys knew databases. These guys knew Windows. These guys knew Visual C++, C++, yeah. development, And they were all system management. level, almost all system level people. Two of the people were um, kind of got their, their comp sci degrees on the, on the graphics side. They're really kind of graphic artists. And the main thing we had to do with them is to shoehorn them into the Windows standard because they wanted to come up with real fancy turtle-shaped boxes for this and, and arrow-shaped boxes for this. And, and they wanted to get real creative. And I felt that we had to give people tools that they were very familiar with. So we went with the standard Windows UI for applications. You know, you know you know what an input box looks like. Let's not get fancy and disguise that from people. Make it easy for them to use. Something they're used to. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> let, let's fall back for a minute and, and what occurs to me is just the difference in, in the day of a software development leader between this active words experience where you've got a, a team of really strong, really independent, creative, motivated people where I spent most of my time personally, one, working with them to make sure we all had a clear uh, understanding, first of all, the, the overall vision of the product, what it was meant to do, and then detailed understanding of uh, the functionality that we were building and the decisions we had to make and so on. Just focusing on, on the technical work. And I didn't get into it, but it included what happens when you have multi-user applications over uh, a network, you know, 40 people working off the same word base, let's say in a call center, uh, all the issues uh, associated with that. But I spent almost all my time either working with them to achieve, maintain, sustain this consensus, and the rest of the time, I spent my personal time doing quality assurance. Okay. After the product was built, I got on the road and started doing the, the marketing VP thing. Um, I was CEO of the company, incidentally, but, but you know, marketing didn't start till we had something to go and show, the, um, contrary to a lot of software development shops. Then go, let's say, five, six years earlier, and here I am in the middle of 150, 200 people, and we're building a software application where I'm spending 95% of my time mediating between all of these very, very urgent interests, only a few of which were technical, at knowing that, that any time I stole away from the technical work of cleaning up after the mess that you create every day by responding to all these fire drills from existing customers, from regulations, from future customers, 
and from releases of the underlying operating system, and in this case it was uh, IBM's mainframe system and, and the Unisys uh, mainframe systems because we supported both platforms, which are, are common in, in the financial industry. The, um, uh, so you're responding to all that stuff knowing that you're just creating buckets full of spaghetti code because you're doing so many things on an urgent basis and you've got to meet these launch schedules. In other words, the banks all have to be up on this new release by August 15th so they can get the bank statements out for tax purposes and so on. And you've got to have all the software to detect money laundering and all that kind of stuff. So very, very urgent requirements. They're absolutely non-negotiable. Okay? So you've got to negotiate other things away. So there you are, you've got this skill set that includes a lot of technical leadership and, and the skills for inspiring a technical team and so on, and you're spending none of your time doing that. And you're spending all of your time being Kofi Annan to a bunch of very important, valid, uh, must-be-served constituencies. And so you've got to really suppress all of your technical uh, instincts and urgencies to be able to serve all the political interests. Because if you don't, the company will cease to exist. Well, cool. Well, I guess what we can call this is uh, inception. We can call this, uh, you know, the conception of, a, of a, an, an idea, the uh, prototype, um, and, and the beginning phases of, uh, of building that product and bringing it to market. And I, I hope we'll get to do this again. Um, we'll, uh, we'll shrink wrap this, uh, this, this little conversation here and throw it up on the web as a podcast. Anytime. And, uh, well, so here we are. It's, it's, uh, it's still a beautiful day here in, uh, in uh, Orlando, Florida, in front of Lake Eola, picturesque setting. Nothing but uh, blue skies and sunshine. No more hurricanes. Uh, Serge Beauregard. Uh, thank you very much. I'm Mike Levin, and uh, we will talk to you again soon. And so it goes.